From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. We've identified that there is a dominant narrative around hunger specifically, and that often it can perpetuate the very conditions of poverty and hunger. This week on our show, we examine the stories surrounding hunger and poverty in our communities, and how we might, in this period of crisis and transition, imagine new food systems and address food insecurity with an eye towards social justice. We revisit insightful conversations with Stephanie Solomon and Amanda Nicky with a local community food resource center, Mother Hubbard's Cupboard. Those conversations just ahead, so stay with us. is produced from the campus of Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. We wish to acknowledge and honor the Miami, Delaware, Potawatomi, and Shawnee people on whose ancestral homelands and resources Indiana University was built. As a nation, we seem to be in transition. We just had a presidential election, and so much is in flux due to a raging out-of-control coronavirus pandemic, and we've had a summer of racial reckoning sparked by the brutal killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery. Our criminal justice systems are being challenged like never before. And the pandemic brought to light so many flaws in our food system from the long supply chains that cannot easily adapt to crisis, to the lack of protections for essential food workers, from farm laborers to wait staff. And I've been thinking about conversations I've had with Amanda Nicky and Stephanie Solomon of Mother Hubbard's Cupboard, also known as The Hub. A couple of years ago, I had them on the show to talk about rethinking emergency food provision, which is part of what they do. They are an organization that has been at the forefront of challenging the ways we think about hunger. And I think it's a good time to give these conversations a second listen. Now, while many of us are dreaming how we might remake our world. I am Amanda Nicky, the president and CEO of Mother Hubbard's Cupboard. And I'm Stephanie Solomon, the director of education and outreach at Mother Hubbard's Cupboard. Quick update, though Stephanie Solomon was with The Hub, for more than a decade. She is now Prevention Coordinator with the Monroe County Youth Services Bureau and a master's student in the School of Public Health at Indiana University. We started as a food pantry with a focus on gardening and nutrition and healthy food. But when we moved in 2013 to our site at West Allen, we revisioned ourselves as a community food resource center. And what we mean by that is that we, yes, have a food pantry, and that is in fact our largest program, but it's housed within a resource center where not only can you come and 
access food assistance, but you can also learn about crockpot cooking or container gardening or borrow a crockpot or take a container home with you and borrow the tools that you need for your own garden so that it's not just resources in terms of emergency food. It's resources in terms of what you need to build household food security. From the very beginning and by design, the hub has been a food pantry that anyone can access in as dignified a way as possible, which is not always true when folks are looking to access services, social services around basic needs. There's no means testing to use our services. People can come in. Um, there's no really any forms to fill out or proof of identification or income level or need. Um, we run on the honor system. People don't have to come in and jump through more hoops and prove their need in the ways that they might when they're accessing other resources. We trust that if people are coming in and getting food, then they need it. And it's not our place to judge whether they need it or how long they need it. So I attended the Food Day event at The Hub this year and reported on it for Earth Eats, as you, as you might remember. One of the components of the day involved addressing dominant narratives. And I was wondering, Stephanie, if you could start by talking about what you mean by a dominant narrative. Dominant narratives are really the public narratives that surround us as we navigate the world. So there are narratives about larger issues of poverty, why people, why some people have access to resources and why some people don't. And we've identified that there is a dominant narrative around hunger specifically, and that often it can perpetuate the very conditions of poverty and hunger. So Food Day gave us an opportunity to look at that public narrative and the ways that we as a community conceptualize hunger, why we think it exists, what the solutions are for it. And by tackling that narrative and really uncovering it, um, we can see where its truths and lies are and start to rebuild a narrative that's empowering and that truly addresses the roots of hunger and poverty. So by narrative, dominant narratives, you're really talking about stories, the the stories that, the powerful stories coming from sort of the mainstream culture, the dominant culture, the culture with power. What are some of the stories that are surrounding food insecurity and hunger relief? One of the narratives around hunger is that it's a temporary thing, that it's something that it's a condition that people experience or a sit it's situational. It's because of the loss of a job um, that is temporary or um, something that someone is fa facing in terms of crisis with their health or some kind of family situation. And that the majority of people that experience hunger are able to move out of it. That, you know, using services like ours or other emergency food services is just something that people are going to do for a short amount of time. And what follows from that is really, when we talk about stories, uh, the bootstrap story. There is embedded in that story the idea that we have equal opportunity to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and truly make the need for a food pantry like ours a temporary occurrence. But we know that that is a flawed story because we see the circumstances that lead to all all different needs uh, for food assistance that are often long-term. 
Yeah, I, I would add that, you know, the, the more attractive story that people want to hear is that it's a temporary need, that people come into the pantry, get some services for a couple of months, and then because of their ability to, you know, use our food pantry um, or our tool share or access to our education programming, then um, because of all of that coming together, then they are then able to kind of work their way out of that need, work their way out of poverty somehow. Um, and I think that what's less attractive is that that's not the reality, really, for many of our patrons. Many of our patrons have been using emergency food services for years, and they will continue to use those services for years to come. So it's not really emergency anymore. It's kind of a, a way of life. It's one part of many resources in our community or beyond that people are using just to survive. So what are, why do you think that it's important to challenge these stories and what, what kind of impact can that have? I think what's most important in challenging these stories is that it helps us look at solutions from a different perspective. If we think that access to an emergency food pantry and um, you know, the other kind of programming we have is to th that those things alone are going to solve hunger in our community, then, then we continue to put resources into those kinds of programs. We continue to support an emergency food pantry or um, education programs, you know, that kind of thing. But I think if we challenge those ideas and say we have to do more than, than just this programming, um, it just changes the way that we, uh, we approach the problem. And I think that's where our advocacy work comes in and that we recognize that just these, these kind of program things that we're doing alone are not going to solve these problems. We have to find ways for people to engage in their larger community, for people to get involved in legislation, for people to understand what's happening, the decisions that are being made about their lives and how they're going to impact them. And we cannot advocate around food security with the single narrative and the single story that we have about people and poverty and hunger as it stands. And so part of our advocacy work is starting to lift up uh, the real stories and the lived experiences of people who are needing food assistance, whether it's on a monthly or a longer term basis. So to ground why dominant narrative is an important topic, we have to look at the problematic stories surrounding hunger and how we can get the true stories out into the world. One of the things I heard one of you mention was something about addressing root causes to hunger. So what are some of those root causes that lead people to need to come to a place like Mother Hubbard's Cupboard to access food? One that's really obvious that I guess we don't talk about very often is money. People don't not have food because there isn't food to be had. It's because they don't have money to buy it. It's really simplistic, but the solutions to that are really complex. And I think that that's why we don't talk about it. That's why we don't want to think about that 
when we think about food access or the number of people in our community who are food insecure or that still one in five children in our community don't have access to adequate food on a daily basis. Um, we don't want to think about the fact that it's it's just a lack of income that's that's making that happen, a lack of adequate income, because solving that problem is so much more complex than hosting a food drive. If you're just joining us here on Earth Eats, my guests are Amanda Nicky and Stephanie Solomon with the Community Food Resource Center in Bloomington, Indiana. We've been talking about the dominant narrative surrounding hunger in America and what it means to focus on root causes of food insecurity. So if we see hunger as an issue of inadequate food, then the best way to address it is obviously through food pantries and food banking and SNAP benefits. But if we look at root causes and we take hunger out of a vacuum and look at it through the lens of poverty and money, um, then our solutions change. And, and that's what we're trying to do by redefining the narrative. And, and I would add that there's always the risk here of sounding like what we're saying is we shouldn't have food pantries or we shouldn't have food banks or emergency food programs shouldn't exist. And, and I, and I want to say that that's, that's not what we're saying. What we are saying is that it's not the sole responsibility of those organizations to solve the problem of hunger. It's impossible for those organizations to solve the problem of hunger. We, we don't have the power that the greater community has to draw attention to these issues, to provide solutions for these issues. But we're often tasked collectively as emergency food providers to solve this problem, to show how we're improving the lives of our patrons, to show how we're providing opportunities for growth. Um, and I think we have to be honest and say that there's only so much we can do there. The narrative that has been successful is that people need to eat now. And we should be proud of the work that our food banks and soup kitchens and food pantries do um, to address the fact that people need to eat now. And I think it can be challenging to think on an individual level kind of the decisions that we make or the ways that we live that perpetuate this problem for people in our community. And so when we... Um, I don't know. It can be really uncomfortable to think more deeply about the decisions that you make on a daily basis that allow for economic inequities. Like what? Like development, wages in our community. I don't know. There's a lot of things that we choose to do as a community that it, it seems like we're not thinking about what's best for everyone. You know, a school putting on a food drive around the holidays is not in itself a bad thing. It's a very kind and thoughtful thing. But on a greater scale, it's not enough. And how often are we doing these small, um, seemingly caring and well-intentioned things that keep us from addressing the greater problems? And that's a really tricky place to be because it's not that those actions in themselves are, are hurtful or unkind. They're the opposite. They're taking care of people in a moment when they need it. But in some ways, it's distracting us from the larger problems. And it's keeping us, it's keeping our hands busy with getting food out the door and the day-to-day -day 
challenge of just feeding people. And so we don't have, as an, as an organization or as a community, we don't have the time um, and the resources to focus on those bigger, bigger problems. So addressing some of those root causes like living wages or affordable housing or the kind of things that might lift people out of poverty so that they don't need to go to a food pantry or don't need to apply for food stamps because they have a sustainable life. Right. I mean, we all want to be able to care for our families to the best of our ability and to not have to rely on services or government support. But we have to be honest and say that not everyone has that same opportunity. And that's a good place to start. I'm speaking with Amanda Nikki and Stephanie Solomon about emergency food providers such as food pantries, food banks, and soup kitchens. We're discussing ways to move beyond the common stories about hunger in our communities and how to begin to address root causes of poverty. After a short break, we'll hear part two of our conversation. In the second part, Solomon and Nikki discuss unicorn stories. You know, the ones about individuals rising up from difficult circumstances to lead successful lives. Inspirational stories like these can end up clouding our understanding and even masking structural inequities that are built into our society. That's just ahead, so stay with us. I'm Kate Young, this is Earth Eats, and we're continuing our second listen to a conversation with Amanda Nikki and Stephanie Solomon. In the first part of the show, we dove into a conversation about the power of stories. We talked about some of the narratives surrounding food insecurity and how those stories and the way we talk about hunger has an impact on how we approach solutions. Our conversation about the power of stories continues and also moves into a discussion about the role of isolation in food insecurity. We'll also take a look at what it means to move from a charity model to a social justice model. One of the narratives we discuss surrounding food assistance and poverty generally is the bootstrap story. The one that says the American dream is all about equal opportunity. We often hear tales in public speeches, for example, of the courageous individual beating the odds. They overcame so many obstacles. They, you know, came from extreme poverty or they came from a horrible household and they were able to pull themselves up and, and be successful. We call those the unicorn stories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's always examples of someone that there's out there, you know, that are held up. Right. And I think, I mean, those are the compelling stories, right? Those are the stories that um, encourage people to give or encourage people to be engaged in an organization or, you know, those are the stories that we write in the appeal letters that we send out at the end of the year. Um, but it, those aren't, um, it's not the whole story. It's not 
um, the story of everyone who comes through the doors at Mother Hubbard's Cupboard. Um, and not every, not every patron has a hopeful story. Not every patron has a story that's going to end well. Those stories, though, they may be true. They're also still perpetuating that, that narrative that any, if this person can, then anyone can. And it, it makes it seem like it's personal failings mm-hmm. um, or poor choices or lack of ambition, those kinds of things that make it easier to write off someone who didn't, didn't succeed in the way that we thought they should. And, and we know that, that it's all complex. It's not black and white. It's not this person made this decision on this day and now they are homeless because of that one decision. It's, it, it's a lifetime of circumstances and and decisions, um, but also lack of choices um, that that lead people to to find themselves kind of in this cycle of poverty. I think this this discussion of the bootstrap narrative really feeds well into the national discussions that we're having right now about gender and racial inequity um, and what it would look like to have true diversity and inclusion in our society. Okay, I'd like to pause here for a moment for a brief explanation of the word equity. What is the difference between equality and equity? Sometimes they're used interchangeably, but they are not the same. My favorite visual for this includes three frames. In the first one, we see three kids trying to look over a fence at a baseball game. They are of varying sizes, and none of them can see over the fence. In the second frame, they're each standing on a crate, and the crates are all the same size. Only the tallest kid can see over the fence. That's equality. Each child got the same assistance, but since they were starting from different places, only the tallest one could reach the goal of seeing over the fence. In the third frame, the tall kid stands on one crate, the middle kid stands on two crates, and the littlest one stands on three crates. They can now all see over the fence. That's equity. Recognizing that we don't all start out at the same place, so some need more assistance than others to reach a level playing field. Okay, back to Stephanie Solomon. If we're working from the assumption that we are an equitable society, then the burden falls on the individual when they can't, for example, afford food. But if we're working from the understanding that the story is much more complex than that, then we can see that there are many opportunities that are being lost because of systemic issues that we have. And Again, if we take that holistic look at those issues, we can really reframe and find some, some opportunities for true food security in, in our communities, but also in our larger culture. So one of the things that I have seen come up in your work is the idea of moving from a charity model to a social justice model. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that means to you to move from a charity model. What's wrong with charity and shouldn't we all be charitable? So I think this goes back to that idea of like kind acts in themselves are are good, right? That charity is good. We we can we can say that right up front. But if you want to if you want to see something change, if you want there to be an improvement, if you want 
the situation that for that individual requires a charitable act to improve, then you have to bring in this idea of social justice. You have to think about, does this person have the opportunities or the support that they need in order to be successful in what it is they're trying to be successful in? If it's just being able to make ends meet or take care of their family or go to school or further their education or whatever, it's important to look at what are the what are the structures that are in place that are keeping them from doing that? What are the obstacles that are in their way? And and charity alone isn't going to to solve that problem. It might solve that problem for that one person, but it's not going to solve the problem for the next person. Often there's a patronizing air behind charity. It's very much uh in the narrative of us and them, we are the givers and they are the receivers. And like Amanda said, charity is not a bad thing. Giving and receiving is is natural and necessary. But we want to be the kind of organization where we are all one. Those of us that are putting the food on the shelves and those of us receiving the food from the shelves, all of us together are working for a more just community. And that's how I see a true transition from a charity to a justice model. It's breaking down those walls and saying, how can we all work together for the kind of community that we all want to work in instead of us telling folks, this is what you need and this is what your community should look like. So I saw on the on the wall at Mother Hubbard's cupboard, um, food is a basic human right. What What do you mean by that? We mean by that just what it sounds like, that Everybody deserves access to the food that they need. So just like water, clean water is a basic human right, uh, food is also a human right. We would not be able to live and sustain our bodies without food. I think it's also important to think about it in terms of access to food is a basic human right. Um, Because when the focus is on access, what that means is that we have, we have to do something. If we're talking about creating access to food for everyone, that everyone should have equal access, it requires that we focus on structures and we assess what are the obstacles. If we're just talking about food as a basic human right, it takes the responsibility away from the larger community to do something about that. Or to do something other than hand someone some food. Exactly. It, it means that we have a, a social structure, an economic structure that supports that everyone can take care of themselves. So the difference there is taking care of themselves rather than having to rely on a charity or on a, a social service. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, that makes me think about how in our mission we talk about dignity and self-sufficiency and if you, if you take that kind of at a surface level and talk about self-sufficiency um, as an insular thing, as an individual or a family building their own self-sufficiency, that's kind of missing the larger point, which is that self-sufficiency is achieved when we build 
networks in our community. Self-sufficiency is possible when we have a, a village to rely on. It's not just about providing food and education around cooking and gardening. It's also about breaking the social isolation uh, of those experiencing poverty and hunger and building a village of networks for folks to rely on each other. And that really does increase your food security. The more resources you have, the more people that you know, the more connections that you have. I mean, when you think about something just as simple as dinner tonight, I ran out of groceries, I don't, it's the end of the month, I don't have a paycheck. But if you invite me over to your house or if I'm your neighbor and I can like stop in, that's already increasing my, my food security, just, just having that connection. So I could see where experiencing poverty and also being isolated in your community, not having those connections could really, in a tangible way, affect your access to food and other resources. Yeah, I mean, I think I think back on when I was a kid and my my mother was very close to all of our neighbors. And if we needed something, we knew that we could go to a neighbor and ask. And as a kid, I didn't I didn't think about the fact that maybe the reason we were asking the neighbor was because we couldn't afford it ourselves. I just knew that if we needed something, we could ask the people that lived around us, the people that we were close to. And I think that a lot of people are missing that, um, especially in low-income communities. Um, but something that came out of some research that a doctoral student did for us a few years ago, they surveyed people in a low-income community and found that those people who knew their neighbors and felt connected to their neighbors reported feeling less food insecurity. Um, they felt like they could rely on neighbors for support when they needed it. And it, it's an obvious thing that we probably know, um, but I think it's, it's great that there's some, some research to back that up, especially in our own community. I asked Nikki and Solomon about the difficulties in moving towards a social justice model while still serving as a food provider in the community. I asked about some of the risks and complications involved in bringing forward the problems inherent in providing direct food aid. We talked about the risk of alienating some of the supporters of the organization and about how, at least in this moment, it's not an either-or situation. It would be naive for us to think that we could shut the pantry down tomorrow. or And not only naive, it would be cruel. For better or for worse, we have this position in the community and we are providing groceries for you know thousands of people a week. We can't step away from that. But it doesn't mean that we can't focus on other things and try to build power in other ways and try to listen to people who aren't often being listened to or to, to, to kind of raise up those stories of patrons that aren't being heard otherwise. Um, we, can, we can do both. As somebody who worked at the food bank and then moved to um, Mother Hubbard's in my current role, um, there is there's a very strong narrative in the food bank uh, about the work that's being done. And um, just like any other story, it has its truths, but it's also it has its holes, too. Um, and so in some what, ways, what is that narrative? Well, the narrative is the one that we talked about uh, earlier, which is that people need to eat food today. People need food on their plates today. And so we are doing the good work of making sure that everybody has the food that they need. And so if that's our narrative, that that's what our role is, and that anything else that we do is mission creep, 
um, then it's going to be pretty uncomfortable to sit down and have people say, let's look at the ways that that this system reinforces um, systems of oppression. Um, So it's inevitably going to be uncomfortable to to change that narrative. Um, But I think there's a lot of people that are that are ready to do the work. So by mission creep, you just mean, um, you know, where you're getting off, you know, your mission is to feed people. Don't expand it beyond that. I read about mission creep in Andy Fisher's book, Big Hunger, where he discusses the challenges that food banks and other emergency food providers have in taking on issues outside of hunger related policies. So, for example, he talks about that they might have an advocacy wing as a part of a food bank, but the advocacy wing is pretty constrained in terms of talking about issues like SNAP or food stamps and child nutrition reauthorization. Whereas if the city that the food bank is in has a living wages campaign, it's often seen by the food bank to be mission creep to get involved, even though living wages would do a lot for people experiencing hunger and needing their services. In the world of anti-hunger, if your mission is to get food on people's plates, it, it can feel like mission creep if you're looking at roots of hunger like poverty and injustice. So we have to look outside of the vacuum of hunger for it to even make sense to be looking at these bigger issues. I've been speaking with Amanda Nicky and Stephanie Solomon from Mother Hubbard's Cupboard, or The Hub, in Bloomington, Indiana. The Hub is a community food resource center offering food pantry services, education around growing and cooking food, and an advocacy program focused on equity and social justice. Since this conversation first aired, Stephanie Solomon has moved from the Hub to a position as the prevention coordinator at the Monroe County Youth Services Bureau. I spoke with Amanda Nicky earlier this year, in March, about the challenges the Hub is facing due to the coronavirus pandemic. We'll hear that conversation after a short break, so stay with us. March of this year, when the coronavirus hit the U.S. and stay-at-home orders were issued, the hub had to switch gears quickly. 
closing down wasn't an option. Food is an essential service, and with many people suddenly out of work, they knew their services would be more important than ever. I visited the hub in those early days of the pandemic and spoke with President and CEO Amanda Nicky. For those of you just joining us, Amanda Nicky will reintroduce Mother Hubbard's Cupboard. We offer a food pantry that operates kind of like a grocery store. We try to offer as much fresh food as possible. People can just walk through the pantry and pick the items that they want. And then we also offer education programming. So we have cooking and gardening programming, a tool share that is a lending library of cooking and gardening tools. We have kids programming, kids cook and kids gardening workshops. And then we also do advocacy around local, state, and national issues affecting hunger and poverty. Do you consider the work that you do at Mother Hubbard's to be an essential service? Like as this is kind of coming up right now during this crisis, there's a lot of talk about what are the essential services? Do you consider this an essential service? Yeah, I mean, I think um, simply because folks rely on us week to week just to make it, we have become an essential service. I I think one of the things that's like slowly hit me over the last week is how unprepared most people are for a crisis like this. It's not like responding to a natural disaster where the harm or the risk has happened, or, you know, that the disaster has happened, and now you're going into a community and trying to meet the food needs. Um, you know, food banks have lots of experience with that kind of thing. But when I think about, you know, what we're all going through right now, like, we're all at risk all the time. And that's something that I'm trying to wrap my brain around. Um, how do we, as emergency food providers, respond to the everyday need, the crisis need, and the real risk to ourselves um, and to others that we're interacting with. And that's something that I, it's just, I know that everyone is saying this, it's unprecedented, um, but it is. And that's the thing that I don't, I don't really know. I don't really know what to do. And I, you know, right now, today, we are an essential service unless someone else or, you know, someone from the government or the military or something steps in um, and takes control over this, then, you know, we, we, are an, we are an essential service. What do you think that this crisis tells us or can tell us about how we deal with hunger in the U.S.? I mean, I, I think mostly that... It's highlighting how much of our everyday lives food banks and food pantries and soup kitchens have become. That, you know, when someone needs food, then these are the ways that they should go about getting it um, instead of really trying to address those root causes and that it's an inadequate response and that it's, you know, the, the people who rely on our services and, you know, people all over the country who rely on similar services just to make it through the week, that these are the people that are going to be at a higher risk of contracting the virus and getting seriously ill because they have to be out there. They have to 
you know, get food wherever they can during the week um, from as many resources as are available to them. They don't have the option of going to the store and buying several weeks worth of food or ordering things online and having it delivered to their home. I just, I think that it's, it's highlighting all of the different ways that we actually have a different food system for people who are experiencing poverty. Do you think that it's the responsibility of charities like a food pantry to meet this need? I think that's I think that's a difficult question because I think that the community as a whole feels that it's our role to meet the need during this crisis, right? But I I have to feel a little bit like at least for me, I don't feel fully equipped to deal with this crisis and to do the work that we are supposed to do. You know, we, we're we really good at running the organization that we have, um, but this is something we've never, ever had to experience. And I think that, you know, we're being careful and we're taking precautions. And I know that all the other organizations in our community are doing the same thing and we're all doing the best that we can with what we have. But it feels... Uh, I don't know. It feels a little bit lonely. It feels a little bit like we're just making it up as we go <laughs> um, and hoping that we're doing the right thing. So, I mean, if is it a responsibility? Is it an obligation? Is it our role? I think those are all a little bit different things. I know that all of, you know, I, I'm speaking for the hub, but probably other organizations in town too, like we do feel like if we don't do this, who's going to? But we feel like that every day anyway, because that's just the reality of the work that we do, that if we don't provide food for people who need it in our community, who else is going to do that? Wages aren't going up, housing isn't getting cheaper. The people who have power to change the conditions in our community aren't doing that. And so we have to be here every day doing the things that we do. And now in this crisis that at least I don't feel fully equipped to handle, we have to keep doing that and we have to do more and we have to take, a, take on more of a risk, um, more of a risk than we've ever had to do before. The first change they made was to cancel all programming except for food distribution. We stopped all of our non-essential programming, so workshops and all of our cooking demos, the drop-in classes that we have, kids cook, all of our kids programming. Um, we suspended the tool share rentals um, right now. Mostly we just don't have the capacity to deal with, with the tool share program on top of everything else. Then they limited the number of people allowed in the pantry at one time. Quickly, they switched to a pickup system outside on the patio and asked people to approach one at a time. And we set up some cone barriers that just said, stop here, one household at a time, and asked people to just walk up, tell us if they wanted, you know, what kind of meat they wanted. There were some options that people could choose from. We prep the box, we take it to a table that's six feet from the cones. When we walk away, after dropping the box down, then we would tell folks they could come up and pick up their box. On Monday, March 16th, they made the difficult decision to prohibit volunteers on site. 
we have, you know, anywhere between four and 500 volunteers on an annual basis and dozens each day on different shifts. And it's just too many people to try to catch up to speed every day. And we wanted to make our best effort to close our circle and limit the number of people that we're in close contact with. And it just seemed like the best thing to do is to minimize who was going to be in the building and who was going to be packing the boxes and who was going to be in close quarters together. Um, So we narrowed it down to just staff. And it feels terrible. And I know that, you know, this is the kind of situation that people want to do. You know, they they want to take some kind of action. And I know it's so hard for so many people to know that the best action they can do is to stay at home. It was heartbreaking to have to tell so many of our regular volunteers last week that we love you and we wish you could be here, but you can't. Um, The best thing you can do for us is to stay home and to support us from afar. (laughs) I do want to talk about the community response because we've seen a lot of support from the community. And I think a lot of organizations in town have, and I'm sure organizations all over the country have, but we've seen an amazing outpouring of support, either financially or with resources. We desperately needed boxes last week and we were getting box deliveries all day, every day um, from folks in the community. Um, We've had a lot of financial donations that are really, really helpful right now. Other businesses in town who have dropped off supplies for us, gloves or boxes, food, beer, (laughs) those kinds of things, um, just to help us kind of get through each day has been really, uh, it's been really moving for me. Sometimes this work can seem really lonely and sometimes it feels like people in, in the community don't really understand how serious the situation is every day. And so for people to come out and show us this kind of support right now, it means a lot. Um, even just the email messages or the voicemail messages that we're getting from folks that are saying thank you, um, or the posts on Facebook that are just saying thank you for being there or thank you for doing this or you know, keep, keep at it, you're doing a great job. It's helping us. It's helping us get through each day. Thank you. (laughs) So they were down to six staff members focused on a new system of packing up food boxes and handing them out in the parking lot. I stopped by on Friday, and keeping my distance, I observed their system for the last two hours of the day. The staff arranged stools and rope in the parking lot with signage, directing people to the tent. The lot could hold about six cars at once. It was full for the entire two hours with cars backed up down the street. A few folks without cars walked up and stepped into the line. Each household could take the number of boxes they needed and had a choice between fish and chicken and an option for a gallon of milk. It's an incredibly different model than what we're used to. Full disclosure, I worked at the Hub for seven years. Central to the organization's mission is serving people with dignity, offering choice, and building relationships. Handing someone a prepackaged box, wearing a face mask and gloves, and keeping a six-foot distance goes against everything the hub stands for. Thank you, though. Yeah, now we're here. 
Thank you so much. Thank you. I, you guys are awesome. Thank Thanks. You for everything you do. Amanda, Sarah, Liz, Kristen, Hannah, and Alyssa managed to keep their spirits up, cracking jokes and cranking the music from the warehouse. At one point, when a patron had trouble hearing the meat choices, Amanda resorted to gesturing. Fish? Moving her hand like a wave. Then, chicken? With thumbs in her armpits, she flapped her arms like chicken wings. Fish or chicken? It was impossible not to laugh out loud, or at least crack a smile. Okay, there you go. Thanks. Thanks, guys, for everything. Thanks for your work. And I observed another gesture from Amanda. After the boxes for a household were gathered on the table and ready for pickup, Amanda would let them know, saying, here you go, thanks. And she'd give the sides of the boxes several affectionate pats with her gloved hands before walking back to her station to maintain that six-foot distance. Okay, there you go. I read those pats as her intention to connect, almost a virtual hug, a way to say, I can't be close to you, but I care about you. There wasn't a lot of room for such tenderness in these interactions. For the sake of clarity, it was mostly reduced to instructions and requests, often yelled across the distance and over the hum of idling cars. But Amanda found a way. It seems like that's what people are doing all over in our communities, adjusting to this new normal. Finding a way. The hub continues to distribute food from their parking lot. They've experienced a significant increase in households served since starting their COVID response. You can read a statement composed by the hub staff in response to a letter that the Trump administration had attached to federal food aid boxes just ahead of the election. Like many other food banks and food pantries, the hub staff removed the letters before handing out the boxes to avoid connecting food assistance to partisan campaigning. We'll have a link to their website at eartheats.org. I hope these conversations have provided food for thought and that they can serve as a launching pad as we continue to dream and to plan and to reimagine our food systems. We may be entering an era of new possibilities for producing, processing, distributing, serving, and sharing food in our communities. Perhaps we can approach this reimagining through a lens of social justice. I'm Kate Young, and that's our show. Thanks for listening. Take care. The Earth Eats team includes Aoban Binder, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Josephine McRobbie, the IU Food Institute, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Special thanks this week to Stephanie Solomon, Amanda Nicky, and everyone at The Hub. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. 
Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Productions Music. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Thank you.